Dave's Psych Lectures, part of the Thunderbird 6 Podcasting So it's, there's a reason it's, it's, it's readable, it's, a re, it's also really important. Um, and they're, they're good guys, especially Gus Craig, he's quite funny. Last time I saw Gus, I was a postdoc at Western, and it was, remember, it was like the early 90s, so I was all dressed up like I was in Nirvana. And, um, said, hey Gus, good to see you again. He said, I can see you got really dressed up for my talk, didn't you? Because I was all, my pants and jeans were all falling apart, and my t-shirt on. Well, not unlike now, really. Um, all right. Okay, let's talk about models. Um, by the way, this is the place where you can make the bad joke and show some models. I won't do that. This happens every conference I go to. Someone says, I'm going to talk about a model, and they show me a picture, and it's a model. And everybody goes, and we laugh. So it's like, God, this is some good new material. So there are two types of models. There's models that look at specific phenomena. We've talked about these act star, TLC, which, you know, because there's no final exam in the course, you never have to worry about again. They're about a specific kind of memory, and that they're about word meaning, basically, aren't they? That's what those things are about. And models that look at general organization. Atkinson Shepherd is probably the greatest example here. Uh, and it's the first really big model. And it's looking at the general organization of all of memory which is a pretty lofty goal. Oh, okay. Let's go back. Right? Uh, these things tend to make much more specific predictions than these, these guys. Don't Because if they're about specific phenomenon, they kind of have to make specific predictions. These things tend to be more mathematical or computer science based. Uh, these kind of things don't tend to work that way. They make general predictions of patterns in data, but not specific predictions about you know, decay functions, things like that. They still, if they're any good, they still make predictions that are testable, both kinds of models. Right? But these are making specific predictions, again, usually mathematical ones. Right? Whereas this one is about these kind, Atkinson Schiffer, or we talk about episodic procedure or whatever you want to talk about. They, those kind of models, are talking about patterns in data. Which is a useful kind of prediction, too. I don't think one's better than the other. I actually like these, personally. I, uh, I like these kind of things better, the broader models, uh, because they explain a lot of data. And I like looking for patterns, not necessarily exact numbers. Right? There's so many other variables out there that can affect things, so worrying about exact numbers isn't a thing for me. That said, it's also partially because I'm not a computer scientist. I think, I think I'm a bias there. So. Okay. I think that's one of the times we did that. Yeah. Why would you model stuff? Well, <coughs> the first thing models do is they organize data. This is, and I mentioned this before I started recording. Um, when Tulvin came out in 1972 with the episodic semantic distinction, everybody liked that. There was pretty much general agreement that it was a useful way to classify tasks. This is an episodic task or a semantic task. So it organizes that. 
Atkinson Schifrin does this. Are you talking about long-term memory or short-term memory? And indeed, so does AXTAR, TLC, and neural network models do that. Right? You get a lot of bizarre data coming in, a lot of numbers in those cases, your reaction times, those kind of things. And if you ever, well, I shouldn't say if you've ever, because none of you have, but when you look at a data set like that of someone who's been asked to identify words, is this a, you know, those kind of statements, yes, no statements, is a, is a, is a bird, a mammal, those kind of things. And they're yes, no answers, nobody gets them wrong, but it's all just reaction times. And you test somebody literally thousands of times, you just got a bunch of numbers. If you can organize those numbers, that's wonderful. They will make explicit predictions. Now, depending on the kind of model, if it's one of these more narrow models like Axstar or TLC, they are going to make very explicit predictions about um, amount, of amount of reaction time. Like they're going to give you numbers a lot of times. Right. But so will Atkins and Schifrin give you explicit predictions. Right? Because it says there's different systems, it's going to say we can affect short-term and not long-term memory. <clears throat> Episodic semantic does this. That memory for knowing what breakfast is, semantic, is different than remembering what you had for breakfast. One will decay, one won't. So those are pretty specific predictions. And they can lead to applications. Um, a lot of memory tests for neuropsychological disorders. Look, uh, take one of these models as a, a basis. Right? So if it's, if you're looking at, for example, after someone's had an accident, you might want to take a look at their ability to remember a list of words and their ability to show priming. And take a look over time and see that if they're, as they're getting better, maybe the remembering a list of words is getting better. Or digit span. That's all about working memory and how working memory works. And those, again, are often used when someone has a neurological accident of some sort or a disease. So there are real applications here. There are real applications. And I talked about how neural networks, neural networks aren't just used at all to explain psychological data anymore. They're used to run big freaking machines. They're used to run stoplight systems, as I mentioned, in, in, in cities. Because what they do is they can actually learn. So the model itself learns what the traffic patterns are on different days with different weather patterns, uh, different times of day, and it can learn how to speed up or slow down when the lights change. Which is much better than, you know, we're just going to sync up four lights. Which is, I believe, what we have. That's the model we use here in town. We'll sync up four, but there'll be two here, two here, and a red one in the middle. <laughs> right? It's, it's, that's, that's the model we're using here. They could use a real neural network model, a little expensive, and it tend, those things tend to be used in big cities. But they have sensors in the road, they detect when the cars are there, all these things. And the thing can actually learn. The thing can actually learn. When you think about it, these first two things are actually what science is able to organize data and make predictions. That's what we're supposed to do. Um, so models help us beyond simple description. I think a lot of people, when they hear about a model of any kind of phenomenon, and this is true in basically any of the life sciences, so you hear the same thing about foraging models in, in, in uh, behavioral ecology, uh, uh, these kind of things. A lot of times... People think, well, you're just describing things. No, you're actually doing science. You're organizing data and making predictions. Right? 
Sometimes a model can actually make predictions you wouldn't even expect. And that's one of the beautiful things. If you took learning, you know that the restore the lag model led to all these predictions. People went, oh, that can't be. And then, oh, there it is. Okay, so let's talk about SAM. SAM is, called, is the search and associative memory. This is one of those specific models. But it's a little broader than TLC, a little broader than ActStar. Because they're just about what? They're just about organization of, of, of semantic memory. This is learning, this is about uh, how list learning works. Now, list learning, you might say, that seems pretty specific, Dave. Yeah, but we learn lists all the time. We're doing this all the time. This is the same sort of, this is, this is basically, in a lot of respects, episodic memory. This is modeling it. I don't want to get too bogged down in this. I'm going to talk about the main features of it, okay? Okay, so it's a mathematical model that I will not show you because you don't need to see it. And it's about, again, list learning results. And as much as that sounds very specific, and it is specific, it's broader than you might think because a lot of what we have to learn is lists. They don't necessarily words, but all kinds of things. So what the model does is it studies a list and then the model does recognition or recall. Because how do we test list learning in the lab? We do it with recognition or recall. Recognition is, or recall is just recall the list, please. Recognition is here are some words, which ones were on the list, and half the words were on the list, and half the words weren't. Okay. So that's the, the, the uh, thing that's looking. Okay. Now, any mathematical model has assumptions, right? Because to do the math, we need to assume this and this and this. Just like in statistics, you have to, you know, how statistical tests all have assumptions, and that's because there's math behind how this math works. Okay. The target items, so that's the, each word in a list, is learned in relation to the representations of all the items that are learned. So that not only includes the other words in the list, which should be, as you would expect, words that are right beside in the list are a little more strongly related than words further away, just like you think. Right, we know that. And you should word before more strongly than word after contiguity, rather than, sorry, contingency, not just contiguity. But also the context. Now, you're going to say, well, how do you model the context? Well, you put in a parameter in the model called context. That's all you can do. So you know, like, because context includes what clothes you're wearing, what you have for breakfast, what the room looks like, all kinds of stuff. Okay? So you make associations between the words themselves and other words in the list, but also between, and their representations, but also between the words themselves and the context. And the context does not simply include the other words around the, the word. Do you understand it? Does that make sense? Well, think about it this way. When you learn something, when you're studying, the best thing to do is study sitting up at a desk, not listening to music, in a quiet, decently lit room, the same kind of place. You would, the best place to study, in fact, is right where you write an exam. It really, if it was a final exam in this course, you should study right there. Because that's where you'd sit when you write it. 
because there's all the context around you. It's not just the items themselves that you're learning, the content you're learning, but all the context around you too. Right? So, and we know this from, there's all kinds of data suggesting this is true, by the way. This is the beauty of this. We're modeling this because we have data in advance. We know, for example, that if you learn a list of words while drunk, you will recall them better drunk than you will if you are not drunk. Okay, so if you sober up. You don't have to remember as well as you did if you have a couple drinks. Again? Yeah. Okay, well that makes sense. That, that said, you are still better if you study straight and do the experiments right. You know? Right, so all the stoners No, no, yeah, it's not, yeah. It's not advice to get high while you're writing, uh, while you're studying and take a couple long gifts for an exam. That's not what this is. Okay, it's a little more subtle than that. But, those data, that's true, context effects like that in, in, in learning uh, because of drugs, if you've taken neuropharmacology or if you do next year, um, you will know, you either do know or you'll learn that that's true with almost every drug we talk about in that class. I've always said if you smoke, don't smoke when you're studying because you can't smoke when you're writing a test. It's not 1960. <laughs> you know, there used to be no smoking signs in the classrooms because for a time you could smoke in class. Profs would come in and say, okay, smokers on the left, non-smokers on the right. Like that made a difference, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Profs smoking everywhere anyway, but they did that all the time. Even when I was an undergrad, they used to you know, in break. In hospitals. Well, hospitals, yeah. Doctors were smoking while doing operations. Nah, I don't think quite that bad. Close. Waiting rooms in hospitals. People sucking on butts. You should, if you're going to have a coffee while you write the test, or you can a coffee while you're studying is a good idea. Okay. Okay. The, learn, the to be learned items are associated with the context. Again, the context includes the other words that are around it, but it also includes the other stuff. When words are presented, they are rehearsed. Oh, well, we know that. See, so these are, these are assumptions that, this is how we know our memories work this way. So let's throw those into the model. That's the notion here. And words have what's called a familiarity value. Have I seen this word before? And if the familiarity value is high enough on, on recognition or recall, we say, yes, we've seen that word. And is this old or new? This word, old versus new decisions are made based on the familiarity value, which is a value between zero and one. One is, I am certain I've seen this word before. Zero is, I've never seen this word before. There's going to be a base rate for almost all words, right? And then depending on their general familiarity, but the most, the biggest effect here is going to be, have I just seen this word? So the old news. Like, did I just see it now, yes. opposed to I've seen it in the past? Yes, ma'am. Exactly. I've just seen it now. I've just seen it now. Um, but there's a base rate of familiarity of words. So maybe you did, maybe you did just see it, but it seems familiar, right? So what this is is what we would call a signal detection approach. It's hit and miss, right? Who here's learned signal detection theory? 
at some point in your lives, you all have. You all took intro psych. You've all learned simplification theory. You've all forgotten it. The familiarity value is down. Right? It's from sensation, perception. You know, you're asked, is there a stimulus or not? You respond, yes or no. There are four kinds of answers you can make. You can say, yes, there was an item, and yes, I'm sorry, yes, there was a stimulus, and yes, there actually was one. There can be no stimulus, and you say, yes, that's a false alarm. There can be a miss where you say there's a, you don't say there's a stimulus, where there was one, and there can be no stimulus, the uninteresting one, there's no stimulus, and you don't say anything. So that's all simple detection theory is. Remember, now you remember that from intro site? Maybe some of you took perception or sensation with Lori and Duane. Okay, so then I'm going to take the complete disinterest as a indication that yes, you've all learned it before. Okay, that's what this is, a signal detection approach to memory. But what's the signal? It's looking in a representation and saying, is that new or not? Or is that sort of, yeah, is, yeah, is that uh, familiar or not? Let's go with that. And it either is familiar, actually, it was on the list, or it's not. Okay. Now, how, are there, how is the strength of each memory determined? This is based on rehearsal, journey, and coding. Again, this is all very sensible. This just sounds like how our memories work. There are associations between the stimulus and the representation of the word itself. So, what does that mean? Well, there's actually the word itself, what it looks like, and the representation of what it means, a semantic part of this. So there's a, um, a surface part of this, you want to call it, which is what the word looks like, what it sounds like, how many syllables it has, and also the, what it means, the representation of the actual word. and between the stimulus and the context. So stimulus to representation, stimulus to context. And how do we base item retrieval? Well, the experimenter prompts you. How does the experimenter prompt you? Can you please remember the list of words? That's the recall. The recognition is, here's a word. Did you see it before? OK. So how does retrieval work? Retrieval depends on the joint contribution of the context and all of the other items in the item itself. So if we're to determine is it a familiar word or not a familiar word, right? The decision the model makes is the context is here and has an association with the word. And all of the other items in the list and how well they are remembered and their associations. So you say how well it's remembered, what its familiarity value, times the value for the association of that other item to the item you're interested in. Right? It gets weighted that way. Does that make sense? Looks a lot, you have a look on your face like it doesn't, so I'll, so I'll try again. Okay, so you're going to try to retrieve the word. Now again, remember this is a model doing this. This isn't you. But the model tries to retrieve the word based on 
the, the joint contributions, in other words, these, it's an additive model. These things add up. The context, how much the context associates with the word, so a value there, and how much each other item you can remember associates with the word. Right. So it's the context you're in and the word, and each other item in the word. The thing is, each other item, let's say one, say one of the words is uh, mouse, and one of them is paper. And then we're trying to remember the word phone. Now let's say that mouse is associated strongly with phone for some reason, because it was right before in the list. And paper was associated much more weakly because it was earlier in the list. Okay? We add these things together. If now this is where the multiplication comes in. Can I remember the word mouse, even though I'm trying to remember the word phone? If I remember the word mouse, what's the probability of remembering the word mouse? Let's say it's point two. Yeah, go ahead. So are you using like your spatial memory of it? No. Where the word it's not, is no, in don't, relation No, don't think about space. But you can think of it that way and, like, as an analogy, yeah. But it, it's not really space per se. It's, it's, well, it's mathematical space. <laughs> it's not space. It's not the final frontier. Right? Okay, so do it again. So we're trying to remember the word phone. The word mouse came just for the word phone in, in the list. So these are going to be strongly related, okay? Paper is much, is much more distant, about further over here. But again, it's just distant mathematically, and the, the, the association is weaker. Now, let's say we can remember the word paper, and we can remember the word phone. And let's say there's a probability of us remembering those two words is 0.2 and 0.2. So two, two times out of 10, we will remember paper. And two times out of ten, we will remember mouse. Okay. So that, is that okay so far? Two out of ten, two out of ten. But the association value, which varies between zero and one, between mouse and phone, because they're right beside each other in the list, let's say it's 0.5. I'm making up these numbers. And let's say this one here between paper and phone is 0.1. Right? So 0 0.5, 0 0.1. So it's 0 0.5 times 0.2 plus 0.1 times 0.2. See, so we're multiplying, we're weighting it. They're both 0.2 related to it. But one's further away in the representation of the list, so it has less effect on remembering the word phone. Does that make some sense now? That helps? A little bit. A little bit? Yes. Maybe I'll draw it too. Should I also draw it on the board? No, that helped? Matt's like, no, please don't. I think I get it right now. I don't want you to screw me up. Please. Okay, so really, and then we can add all these things up. Plus, there's also the context around the phone in the room, what kind of pants you're wearing. And that relates to, it also, of course, relates to everything else. I'll take my list items and put them back in my pocket. 
So the strength is basically the sum of all the associated strengths in the list. So we get all these numbers, that's the association value times <coughs> how well they're remembered. And we add those together. This explains why recognition is even easier than recall. You're like, oh, how's that again? Well, one of the things I'm presenting with to you, if I present a, re a recognition, if I present recall, I say recall the words. Then you've got to go through all this list of these associations and just say that's high enough for me to say it's familiar. And I say a phone, mouse, but you don't remember paper, let's say, because it's not high enough. But if I actually show you the word paper, that activates the word paper, doesn't it? So it's going to be more likely that you're going to say, oh yeah, that's familiar. Just like on multiple choice tests. You ever had this on a multiple choice test? You read the question, you go, I don't know the freaking answer to that. Because if you do a multiple choice test properly, you should know this, I hope you do by now, try to answer the question before you read the alternatives. Because then if, if you read it, and then it, you say, oh look, it's B, exactly what I thought. You're probably right, actually. Right? Most of you have learned that, that strategy over time, except a couple of you now that are diligently writing that down. So, but there are times when you do multiple choice, and you go, oh God, I don't know what that's right. I don't think I'm even in this class now. <laughs> I don't remember that day. And then work, there's, you read the book, oh no, it's that. It's C. I know. Because the item, the ultimate retrieval cue is the item itself. Think of, here's an absurd example. I wonder where my keys are. Oh, right there. I'm pretty sure they're here because I have them in my hand. I don't go, well, where are they now? I can't find them anywhere. Underneath here? <laughs> no, they're right here. The ultimate retrieval cue is the item itself. Because this explains recognition being easier than recall. It explains a lot, this model, actually. Longer presentations make better memory because there's more rehearsal. It explains retention interval effects. Now, how does it explain those? It explains them such that the context changes subtly. So the long, a short retention interval, let's say five-minute retention interval for a list of words. Almost everything in the context is exactly the same. You still have the same pants on. And even if you weren't wearing pants, you're still not wearing pants. You could be wearing skirts. See, I wasn't getting weird there. <laughs> or perhaps a kilt or a jaunty beret. Now you come back two days later. Your clothes are different, temperature's different outside, there's been other words you've encountered during the day. There have been bigger changes, so it's harder to remember the item. So the context changes subtly for short retention intervals and hugely for long ones. Hey, I like that, that's good. This explains, which then explains serial position, because the first item has been, two ways, first item is is, is uh, associated, sorry, rehearsed a lot. Last item, it's the same damn context you're in. Exactly the same. Uh, it's beautiful, isn't it? It explains encoding specificity. You're saying, well, you've, you've got to tell me what that means. Well, what encoding specificity is, is that the more similar the situation is at encoding to uh, re recall, the more likely you are to remember something. 
which shows, for example, why you can only remember certain things in certain contexts. Right? It's hard for you to remember. It was funny. For example, here's one. The NHL locket had gone on so long, I actually texted my brother and said, I can't remember P.K. Subban's number. And it really bugged me. Because, you know, that's, I know those things. And he replied, it's 76 and you're old. <laughs> right? But as soon as a hockey game comes on, it's like, oh yeah, P.K. was number 76. Now once the season started, I remembered also because my brother texted me and told me. Right? And you'll see that sometimes, right? If I ask you something about something very specific, if you go, you're at the bioscience building sometimes and you're over there or whatever it is, the SR convergence thing, I don't know. What kind of name? What is convergence center? It just says exactly what we don't know what it does. That's what it means. <laughs> Here's a building. Just call it a building. Just say it's the building. Anyway. Thank you, SR, for giving us money. Thank you, thank you, thank you. But I said to you right now, how do you get to, to, to uh, I don't know, how do you get to Ishtvan's office from downstairs on the when you walk in? You might have some trouble with that. You could use the, 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 the algorithm, the heuristic, which is just listen for bad music. But most of you don't know his taste in music because it's horrible. But you might say, I don't know how to get there. Or frankly, I might say to you right now, how do you get to, I don't know, how do you get to student services? Not a student, don't need their services. But, <laughs> just don't, you know, I don't, I don't care. But, I'll tell you something. If I get closer to the context of where it is, if I, like, right now I can't, I actually don't know where it is, but I bet if I walked out there a little bit, I could find where Tom, I think it's Tom Morrow's office is. Go, oh, I know, Director of University Services. And if I don't, he could tell me where it was. Right? So that's something I could do. So, that's encoding specificity. You tend to remember things in the places where you are at the right appropriate time, appropriate place, etc. You're more likely to be able to do math in a math class than you are in an English class. It just works that way. Right? It just makes sense. So it explains that. That's, that's pretty cool. And that actually sort of grows out of the model, and I like that. Um, it, showed, it explains something called recognition failure of recall. Which means that we we recognize stuff but we don't recall it. So you can recognize the thing on the multiple choice, but you can't recall it. And there's you know we can do this. This also happens with semantic memory, not just with outside memories. And a good example. How many of you here know the capital of Pakistan? Don't say it if you know. Now, do you think you'd know it if I give you a list of cities? So if I said it's one of the following, Lahore, Islamabad, Kandahar, or Abbottabad, which one is it? Which one? No, it's not Lahore. It's, it's, it's Islamic. The horse is a great name for a city, it's true. <laughs> what? No, I wasn't thinking that at all. Anyway, so that was a bad example because no one knows capitals of countries. Wrong with you. Okay. 
Actually, the question more is really what's wrong with me becoming the capitals of countries of the world. So it's kind of nice, eh? I think it's kind of a cool model. Yeah, there's a but, because there's always a but with the model. It makes a lot of assumptions. Now, the assumptions are backed up by how the world works, so we can, I can kind of buy that, but it does make a great, large number of assumptions. Also, okay, this is something, and this has always kind of bugged me. If we're adding up all the associations, shouldn't it always reach one? If we have a long enough list, what this says to me is if I give you a long enough list of words, 50,000 words, if I add all those up, shouldn't everything be eventually recalled? Like, as the number of items in the list increases, the number of associations increases. That makes sense, right? And if the number of associations increases, eventually, we should remember everything. So the, the, the fallout of this is, if, we could, if I give you an infinite number of words, you should remember everything ever. And I, I don't think that's true. <laughs> now, I will say that you never get an infinite number of words. Yeah, Dave. But doesn't that make our but our memory works for chunks and it can only go yeah. so much at and a this time and as you're like learning it's being knocked up. Yeah, but this is about how it gets into associative memory, how it gets into long-term memory, right? So this is the my problem here is what this says is as you get older your memory should get better for everything because you should remember more stuff and the more stuff you remember there should be more association with other stuff yeah but no, no we know it doesn't work that way yes I know <laughs> that's, that's the problem that's the issue here now I'm sure the response the people that are smarter than me that come up with this model would say well no you're, you're being ridiculous and I would say yes I know and then I would say, then it would say, we're not talking about all life experiences. We're talking about lists of words. We're doing something specific. And I would, I would have to talk to, yeah, I know, I know that's what you're doing. But wouldn't it be the case that if I gave you an infinite number, yes, shouldn't it be the case then that a list of five thousand words is better remembered than a list of ten words? And that just simply is a lie. There's no way that's true, right? So that's a problem with it, though it does, it does do a nice job. Okay, I, that was the hard model. Thank God, we're almost done. It was it ever the hard model? Okay, this is easy. There's a paper on this, by the way, on the CMS levels of process. This is Gus Craig, Bob Locker, 1972 or 73. They, they say memory isn't a passive thing, and that's in fact, when you think about it, that's what Sam's doing. It's saying this is what happens. Yeah, there's rehearsal, but everything else is all. Memory is the result of encoding. Well, I'm with them so far. That makes complete sense. And there are different levels that we do of encoding. And at the lowest level, what we do is perceptual analysis. What's the word sound like? What's it look like? Right? What's it sound like? What's it look like? Totally perception. And then we look at patterns in the word. Like, for example... How many syllables are there? Okay, that's a pattern. Now you see, you're getting, in their terms, you're getting a little bit deeper now, a little deeper level of analysis. And finally, semantic elaboration. What's the word mean? And I use word here, it could be anything, but it's easy to use it as an example of a list of words. Semantic elaboration is, you know, what's the word mean? Okay, so David 
Dave. Yep. So when you're thinking about a word and you can't get it in your head, and then you start thinking about something else and yep. it pops in, what's that? Um, that's called uh, incubation. Okay. And that's the nominal fallacy because I just gave it a name because you know, I explained it. Um, <laughs> but it's not really that I hate that. It's, we do that a lot in a lot of people do that no matter what their discipline. Oh, that's that. It's like, yeah, well, but so you call it Steve if you want. You gotta it works. Um, there's a lot of theories about how that sort of incubation phenomenon, which seems to be real, how it works. Um, but I honestly don't know. I honestly don't know. Well, because there is the tip of the tongue, right? That's a whole different thing. Tip of the tongue is very hard to study, by the way. Because getting people to do tip of the tongue phenomena, like, you know that? Oh, I know that, yeah. That's hard to do in a lab. It's not as hard as deja vu, but it's close. The way it's done, actually, is with geographic knowledge, Because people do know those things, but they don't know they know them. So if I can say, what's the capital of, um, let's try it easier. <laughs> what's the capital of... New York, state of New York. Do you know what it is? No, it's not your state. What is that? Well, I'm not going to tell you this. Yeah, he knows it is. So let's do it different. Let's do it different. What's the capital of Massachusetts? Do you know that one? No. Okay. Because what you can do is you have to keep getting the one where you go, yeah, I know it, but I don't know what it is. What's the capital of North Dakota? No. Uh, New Brunswick. Did anybody, what I'm trying to get is, did anybody go, I know it, but I don't know it? Yeah. New Brunswick, you think? Okay, is it St. John, is it Fredericton, is it Edmundston, or is it uh, Bathurst? Yeah. See, and you go, I know it. You mess up when you're playing Trivial Pursuit. And there's two kinds of people. There's the kind of people that everyone goes, oh, I knew that. No, you didn't, because you would have said it. And you did every item. And that's the people that really do know it, because then they tell you a whole story, and that's when you're playing with me, because I'm a jerk. Right? Yes, of course that was Pope Leo IV. You know. My dad always got Pope questions. Whenever, in fact, he called the arts and literature category, he always called it arts and popes. Okay. Arts and Pope's question. So yeah, I mean, tip the tongue's tough to do. Tip the tongue's tough to do. So perceptual pattern semantic. So levels of processing. Semantic processing produces better memory than perceptual processing. So this is conceptually driven versus data driven, as it's also called. Uh, Roddy Rodiger says perceptual versus data-driven. It's just another way to say it. I kind of like it a bit better than, well, they mean the same thing. Um, this is really only true with explicit memories. Uh, it doesn't really work in priming, except under very specific circumstances. You find out those circumstances. See, Chalice and Roderick, 1992. So that's levels of processing. If you have deeper semantic, what's called semantic processing, you get better memory. This explains something called the regenerate effect. If I give you a list of words and you read them, you don't recall them as well as if you generate something about the word. So if I make you use it, make you use it in a sentence. 
Or if I give you hints that can only lead to one thing, you have to generate the item itself, but I give you like three hints about the word, you remember that word way better than if I just give you the word. Let's say it was phone, and the word was communicate, and the hints were like communication device, sometimes landline, sometimes cellular. No one comes up with chair. Everyone says phone, because it's phone. There's nothing else it could be. But you remember that better than if I just have you read the word phone. You generated the item yourself rather than reading it. And that's, so we all know that. How many times have people not unlike me, well, not quite as good as me, but not unlike me, say to you, put your notes into your own words? That was a joke, by the way, like my ego there. That was no one. No, well, I'm only half kidding. But so, is the, the regenerate effect then sort of like you're giving a word a meaning exactly to remember it? Deeper semantic processing. That's but exactly you're doing it on your own without yes. the label. Yes, or I can, you know what I can do? Here's an easier way. Uh, data driven would be like count the number of syllables. And conceptually driven is rate the pleasantness of, of this word on the scale of one to seven. That's actually what we use for our paper. And it really has a huge effect. Because you can think about the meaning of the word. You don't have to just go one, two, one, two, three. That's easy to do. You have to think about the meaning. The regenerate effect. Yeah. I guess I should have known I had that next. Okay, we'll do maybe one more slide. Okay. Levels. Completely carpeted, like ancient Egypt. Seinfeld? Yes. Yeah? I'm glad, I'm glad it's my thesis student. Thank you. <laughs> Depth. Let's, that was a bit more deeper process. Doesn't that seem a little vague? This is deeper. When do you get better memory? How do we have evidence of deeper processing? When we have deeper processing. How do we know we have deeper processing? Well, you got better memory. Oh, I see. We don't have anything that's outside it. You know, like we can't say, like, what's the evidence of deeper processing? It's better memory. We don't have some outside way of measuring it. And how do you deeper processing? Well, so I think you see the problem with this. It is somewhat circular. And by somewhat, I mean completely. So, it's actually really useful as a way to classify things. I don't think it's a great, I, as a sort of model of memory, which I think Bob and Gus uh, would say, oh, that's Lockhart and Craig. I, sorry, I know them. Um, so I use their first names because I, I would never say, hey, Craig, hey, Lockhart. But I think they would say, I know Gus for sure would say it's not, it's not a model. Because I've heard him say that. He would tell you, however, that it's a way to categorize different kinds of tasks to explain some data and say, yeah, you're right. So, you know, there's a problem with this. Now, Tolling has talked about the notion of transfer appropriate process, saying if you're going to learn something, So he's kind of incorporating Craig and Lockhart's idea here. 
If you're going to learn something and the thing you want to learn about is number of syllables, then you should be counting number of syllables, not worrying about meaning. If you want to remember words, now think about this. Remembering words, we have representations of words, what they mean. Well, then probably if you want to remember something about a word, knowing what it means is probably the most transfer-appropriate way, the most appropriate way to remember a word is by thinking what it means. Because words have meaning to us. On the other hand, if you were looking at foreign words, even if they're written in our alphabet, okay, so it's a foreign language, so it's got to be something we don't know. I don't know, anybody here speak Dutch? Good. So nobody speaks, neither do I. So if we gave a list of Dutch words, but it's our alphabet, we can read them all day long, but just looking at the way they feel, the way they, I mean, like when I say feel, I don't mean meaning, that's the wrong word. Like how they sound, that's going to work better than someone saying, and by the way, Van Vanderblack means chair. I don't think it does. I don't think that's even a word. It sounds like a bad name. My name is, my name is Josh Van Vanderblack. That's my Dutch guy. Right? So, if you're, so in that case, then, if the transfer appropriate processing is, because we don't speak Dutch, is to look at what the word looks like. That's going to work way better than if someone says, oh, by the way, here's a Dutch-English dictionary while you're, while you're uh, trying to remember these words. It's not, that's actually not going to help you. Because you're going to say, oh, I remember chair, but I can't remember what the Dutch is again. Because it's crazy. Dutch is weird. <laughs> Two references you got. That's good. That's good. Somebody also got that's Austin Powers. On that, well, it's, not, it's actually a gold member. But anyway... On that point, on that strange place to stop, let us stop there, and I'll see you next time. There's stuff up. Take a look at that. Take a look at that paper. That's it. It's a really nice paper. Take
podcast is released under a Creative Commons copyright share like 2.5 Canada. Uh, feel free to redistribute the information as you see fit, but please don't make any money out of it. And if you do, you got to tell me because I'm reserving that right. Giving up all the other ones, including uh, mash it up any way you want, okay? Um, also, of course, give me attribution. If you want to get a hold of me, my email address is dave.broadbeck, B-R-O-D-B-E-C-K, at algomau.ca. My website is people.auc.ca slash broadbeck slash blog. Uh, most of the music, uh, all the music's Podsafe, and most of it comes from GarageBand.com or the Podsafe Music Network. See you next time.